It's good to see everyone this morning. If you will take your Bibles and turn to the book of John, that is where we have found ourselves in the last few weeks as we have begun going verse by verse through this great gospel. We are in the first chapter, John chapter 1. If you, uh, as I said a few weeks ago, if you thought of a swimming pool, uh, John does not have us wade in gently. He has us dive in. He dive, we dive in to, deep, to the deep end of things. The truths that are expressed here in these opening verses we saw last week are absolutely profound. Great theological statement in verse 1. The greatest theological statement some have said. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Imperfect tense, was, always, always, in the beginning, existed in the beginning. He wasn't part of creation. He was there before it was created. He was always there. He was God, with God. The Word was with God, withness, the withness of the Word. He was distinct from the Father. He was God eternal. He was God distinct. The Word, the expression of God, the sermon God gave to the world, the, He exegeted God for us, would be another way to say it. He explained God to us, verse 18 says. That's what the Word does, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this Word who was with God was God. And so in ten one-syllable words, you have a statement on the doctrine of the Trinity. The Word was with God and the Word was God. With God and was God at the same time. Incredible statement. And John just lays out his main point that he's going to prove throughout the entire gospel. Everything in this gospel is about that statement. You read everything in the gospel of John with that statement in mind because that is what he is set to prove to his readers and to convince his readers of. I want you to, I want to teach you real quick before I begin something I learned and I thought it was very helpful. When you're sitting down talking to somebody about who is Jesus and you're talking about Jesus being God and you can't think of the verses that you should be going to, I want to give you a tool that you can use out of your very own Bible. Now, if you have a device in your hand, you're going to have problems with this illustration I'm about to do. You might want to text these to you, to yourself. But if you have a Bible, turn to where you are, John 1, 1. You would start like this and say, my friend, my Jehovah Witness friend, for example, or my Mormon friend, for example. This is who the Bible says Jesus is. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in my Bible, I would write verse 14 by that verse, verse 14. That would tell me I now jump down to verse 14 after I've read that verse to them. I would go down to verse 14, and I would read this to them. And the Word 
that we just read about in verse 1, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word became flesh. God became flesh. That's incarnation. That's Christmas. That's verse 14. And then right next to verse 14, I would write 518, chapter 5, verse 18, telling me now I need to jump to chapter 5, verse 18. So I turn in my Bible to my friend, to chapter 5, to verse 18, and I would read this verse, or let them read this verse, maybe. Verse 18 says, For this reason, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, notice, making himself equal with God. And then, what you want to do right now is write in your column there next to verse 18, chapter 8, verse 58-59. That tells me I jump from this verse to John 8, 58 and 59. So I flip over to John chapter 8, 58. And I read these words spoken by Jesus in verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. I always existed. It's a word of existence. I wasn't, it's not I was, I am. I have always existed. Therefore, they pick up stones to throw at him because that's blasphemy to claim to be God. And I would write in my column for this verse, Chapter 10, verse 31, telling me now I need to jump to chapter 10, verse 30 and 31. And so I'd flip over to 10, 30 30 and 31. Jesus says this in verse 30, I and the Father are one. Verse 31 of John 10, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus said, I, I'm just read a little further here, but Jesus said, I showed you many good works. Why are you st- what are you stoning me for? In verse 33, the Jews said, we're not stoning you for your good works. We are stoning you for blasphemy because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. And then in my column, I would write next to that verse 31, John 14, 8, 14, 8, to tell me to flip over to chapter 14, verse 8. And you recall this scene where Philip says in verse 8 of John 14, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And then next to verse 8 of John chapter 14, I would write 20, chapter 20, verse 27. That telling me now I need to turn to chapter 20, verse 27 of the book of John. This is about Thomas. We know Thomas as Doubting Thomas. 
We know Thomas as one who had to have proof. Jesus provides that proof. And Thomas says, in, and Jesus says in verse 27, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and, and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. And that would lead us to the purpose of the book of John right down in verse 30. Jesus performed all kinds of signs not written in this book, but verse 31 these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, and he is the Son of God. He is uh, equal to God, he is God, same nature as God, he is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Got a little chain reference there to help you with this very important doctrine as to who Christ is. People asked the question in John's day, they asked the question in Jesus' day, and they're still asking that question today. And Jesus is God in a human body, but Jesus is God. And we saw three attributes or three great truths about him in those opening verse of chapter uh, of, of verses 1 and 2. We're going to look at some more today. John MacArthur in his commentary says, John's message is simple. The eternal God himself has become human. The creator has become part of his creation, fully God and fully man. Why did he do this? He might, so that he might save sinners from their sin, from death, from judgment, and from eternal hell. That is why he did it. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. So if you're an unbeliever here this morning, this book will answer your question if you're serious and want to know who Jesus is. If you're a believer here this morning, this book will equip you, equip you in your understanding who Jesus is, that you might declare him with more confidence, you might know him more deeply, and you might have an apologetic, actually, in your hand to be able to respond to those who would challenge the deity of Christ. Well, this morning I want to take us to three more exalting truths about Christ. They're found here in our uh, passage, beginning in verse 3. Let me read these to you. Let me read this section to you. I don't know if I will have time this morning to do all of these, but that is where we're headed in verse 3 of John chapter 1, you'll turn back there. John chapter 1, verse 3. Still talking about the Word who was in the beginning, the Word who was with God, and the Word who was God. We're still talking about the Word. Verse 3, all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being in him, verse 4 says, was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5 says, the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 6 says, there came a man sent from John, excuse me, from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. So let's look back up at verse 3. Our next exalting truth about who Christ is, 
is that he is the creator. You see that in verse 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being. He is the uncreated creator. The uncreated creator. Jehovah Witnesses say he was created by God. That is not true. He is the uncreated creator. And he created with no pre-existing matter. You see that? Apart from him, nothing came into being that has, not, has come into being. In other words, he created out of nothing. Nothing, nothing, Francis Schaeffer used to say. Nothing, nothing. He created with no pre-existing materials. Nothing else was there. Only the Father and the Son in the beginning was the Word. He was there, always there, when there was nothing else there but He and the Father. That's very important. John tells us who the Word was before creation. Verse 3 tells us what He did in creation. He made all things. All things were made through him, and nothing was made without him. He made everything. He made the universe from, with, from nothing. He didn't do what a potter does. A potter shapes clay. He didn't do that. There was nothing. He didn't do what a baker does when he combines ingredients and makes a, a cake or something. He didn't have ingredients. He didn't do any of that. He didn't carve wood like a woodcarver would do because he didn't have anything with which to do that. Does it make sense to you why the miracles of Jesus are not a big deal when you're God and you can do this out of nothing? At least when you're, at least when you're breaking bread for 5,000 people, you've got something to start with. At least when you're healing a blind man, you're starting with something else there. There's pre-existing material there. It's, it's easier to do these miracles than it is to create from absolutely nothing. John is also, in the context of the historical context, Gnosticism is on the rise. Gnosticism was the teaching that matter is evil, the spirit is good, but matter is evil. And there's no way that God the Father could have created matter or had anything to do with matter. Some sub-God did it. Some sub-God, they would say, did it. Some sub-deity did it, who had the power to do it. He's the one that would do that, but God would not do that. That is not what this says. This says, the Word the creator of all things. All things. Some people, have, some people have said that, and I don't know how they got the notion about creation, that some deity did it, but that is not from the Gospel of John. John makes it clear that God Christ, equal with the Father and the Spirit, created. Turn to Genesis 1. Let me just show you something real quick. Because sometimes you can get tripped up here. Sometimes we can get tripped up. In Genesis 1 and 2, 1, 1 and 2. 
the most important, Henry Morris used to say, this is the most important verse in the whole Bible because it lays the foundation for the rest of the Bible. Verse 1 of Genesis 1, it's foundational to everything else. And yet it's so controversial today. But verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, you read that and you go, well, that's God the Father creating, isn't it? And in a real sense, yes, God the Father is creator. But God the Father, we're told, as Revelation progressed, we're told that he is the one that oversaw the creation process. He is in charge, but Christ and the Spirit are in the hands of the Father. The other members of the Trinity are involved in our agents of creation as well. Notice in verse 2, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So we see the Spirit mentioned there. And then, let me read to you, just quote this to you. You can write down this reference for later. But in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, God spoke Long ago in the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, get this, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, who through, through him also he made the world. Christ, uh, Christ was like God's foreman. Christ is the agent through which the world was created. Understand understand that because that can be confusing to you sometimes but it does say that very clearly in hebrews chapter one turn with me to colossians back to the, toward the new testament to colossians 1 verse 16 in that verse i just read to you from hebrews he uses the term he says whom he appointed heir of all things he's an heir to all things he created it, he gets to keep it. It's like your child makes a volcano out of plaster of Paris for a science project at school. He gets to keep it and brings it home and now it's your problem. But the point is, he makes this massive volcano. He gets to keep it because he made it. And that's the term that's used about Christ when it comes to this world. He created it, he's the heir of all things. Look at that Colossians passage, verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, we're talking about Christ, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, notice, have been created through him and for him. See that? He's an heir to it. It's for him. He created it. He was the agent of its creation. It was created for him as well. Look back up at verse 15 of Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God. Notice the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn does not mean chronology in terms like he was created or something. That's not what it means. It means in rank. The firstborn has certain rights. Rights of inheritance. And that's what, this, that, that's what the statement means. He is firstborn of all creation. He has the inheritance all of creation. In Revelation chapter 19, written on the thigh 
of Christ when he comes back, the battle of Armageddon, the title on his thigh is Lord of, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He'll be ruling all the nations. It's, it's, it's not so much a, a title of conquest as it's a title of his inherent right to rule, to reign over what he created, the earth. Revelation chapter 5 is very interesting. They're unrolling, the, the scene is in heaven and the scroll is being unrolled. Who is worthy to unroll it? Who is worthy to come and, and take that position of, of inheriting, of this inheritance that this scroll is going to reveal? It's in Revelation chapter 5, and that's what Revelation is all about. God taking back the earth, Christ taking back the earth from the usurper, Satan, the prince of the power of the air. All of those seals and judgments of Revelation are the process of Christ taking back his inheritance, the earth. Why? He created it. He created it. And he created you and me as well. The eternal, distinct, equal, and he's creator of all things. And he did it out of nothing. In verse 4, excuse me, we move to a second point. A second self-exalting truth about Christ. Or excuse me, a self, another exalting truth about Christ. John chapter 1, verse 4. It says this, in him was life. In him was life. This speaks to the fact that he is God self-existent. This speaks to the fact that he does not require anything or anyone for his existence. We can't imagine this because we are dependent. We can't exist without someone bringing us into existence. We can't, we can't maintain life without someone providing for us. We're like, we're like little birds in a nest with our mouths open in need, a bottomless pit of need. That's not Christ. He's self-existent. Life is in him. He does not need someone to sustain his life. This is important because we're still talking about creation in one sense, but he is the source of all life. He is the one that brings life. He is the one that sustains it and keeps us alive. Life is in himself, he says in John 5, 26. Just as the Father has life in himself, so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And that just really sets God apart from us because, we're, like I said, uh, for us, life is something that we derive. If I was in this universe by myself, I would not survive, and neither would you. We're, we are dependent. We need water. We need oxygen. Our life is, is contingent. That's a word that uh, some theologians use, contingent. We are contingent beings. Christ is a non-contingent being. He depends on on nothing for his existence. And he is the one who has and is the source of life. 
And listen to this in Acts 17. You don't have to turn there, but not, make note of this reference in Acts 17. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times. In Acts 17, verses 25 and 26, I just read, he made everybody. He gave life to all people. And from one man, he made all the nations. He needs nothing. He's the source. He has life in himself, and, and, uh, and that's different than us. People want to sometime make God, bring God off his throne and make him like us. They want to get a God they're comfortable with, one they can get their mind around. Listen, you can't do that. You can't, you, 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 that's to worship you instead of God. That's to lower God, and, and, and that's to make less of God than he really is. We must know God for who he is. We must know Christ for who he is. He is exalting. Scientists cannot figure out where life came from. You know that. They have been trying to figure this out for centuries. Where did life come from? And they've got all kinds of theories. They've come up with all kinds of uh, proposals, written all kinds of books. Uh, the biggest one is chance. Everything happened by chance. That's now become, that used to be a term for probability. That's now become a term of force or something in the universe. I was reading an article by, um, on Stand the Reason website. This is an article quoting a non-believing biologist named Francis Crick, who is the one who co-discovered the structure of the DNA molecule. Now, I'm going to get sound like I'm really smart here in a few minutes, and I'm not. And some of you who have your doctorate in chemistry are going to listen and go, what is he talking about? So I, I'm going to try to stay to the script here. But uh, the point is, this guy's name is Crick. He is the one who discovered the structure of the DNA, DNA molecule. And he made this quote, the origin of life seems almost to be a miracle. That's an interesting word for an atheist to say. So many are the conditions, he says, which would have had to happen to have been satisfied to get it going. To get life going, there are so many conditions that we required for it to happen. And the more science discovers, the more that reality sets in with them. There's a lot of conditions that had to take, had to, had to happen. And how did all these things happen? He starts out by talking about the cell, but then he moves into what's called the proteins that are required, the basic building blocks of human life, he calls them. He says, he says the protein is a chain of amino acids. Amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. They join together into long chains uh, chains that eventually fold into a functional protein. Listen, everybody in this room, if you have life, it's because you have protein, proteins made up of amino acids. 
molecules. You have amino acids or smaller molecules, the larger is the protein. But you need to have these amino acids lining up in the correct order. There's 22 different ones, but you need 200 of them to line up in a perfect line to form the intended protein. That's one protein. You need 200 perfectly self-assembled, is their word, to self-assemble. You need, you need 200 amino acids to somehow self-assemble into, so you can make this protein. And they say basically the, from the primordial pool that happened. You'd be surprised how many scientists say, oh, the chances of that happening are 100%. What? 200 amino acids have to be in, like like, like putting beads, colored beads on something, and you want them in a certain order. It's got to be in that perfect order to form that protein. That's the basic building block of life. And your body has thousands of these proteins. So we're talking about a human body, when man was created, had to have all of these amino acids line up to make all of these proteins, and it has to be done perfectly or you don't have life. They talk about it self-assembling in this primordial pool filled with all kinds of bacteria and everything. They haven't explained where the pool came from yet. That's one problem. But we'll forget that problem. Let's just talk about the probability of this taking place. That's what this unbelieving scientist is saying. It's, it's a miracle. If it, it's a miracle that it would happen. In fact, it shouldn't happen when you consider the chances of it happening. Now, I haven't even gotten into the fact that those amino acids have got to be left-handed amino acids. I do not even know where I'm going with that statement. But the point is, you've got all kinds of amino acids, and it's got to be the right ones lining up 200 of these beads or whatever you want to call them, lining up in the perfect order to make one protein. And your body's got thousands of these proteins. And did I mention DNA comes into the picture? Because... For, the, for these proteins to replicate and reproduce, they've got to have DNA. And that's what DNA does. It can cause a protein to replicate. A protein can live without DNA, but it's not going to reproduce. And DNA has no purpose if it doesn't have a protein. So basically what happened in that primordial pool was that these molecules all got together to support each other. What by chance, they say. That's how they explain life. I read guys I could not believe, smart guys, saying that happens by chance. In fact, they have said, unbelieving scientists have said this, that it takes 10, 1 times 10 to the 164th power for, is the probability that this would even happen in that primordial pool. Think about that. That is more atoms than our whole universe has. That's the chance, though, that they're willing to say is possible. The probability, they say, for some, they say is there. Many are not saying that anymore, by the way. 
Many are questioning their own science on this. This guy included, but there was a guy several years ago, Anthony Slew, maybe? He came out with a, oh, here it is. Anthony Flew, not Slew. He said this was just too hard to overcome. The, this happening by chance and the probability of this happening without an intelligent designer was just beyond him. For 60 plus years, he was a leading atheist. He was a, a leading evolutionist. And after 60 plus years, he said this issue on proteins and how they're formed and the probability of it all, he said, I couldn't deny an intelligent designer. I'm not saying he became a Christian. He wrote a book, There Is a God, that came out in the early 2000s. I haven't read it. I've just read about it. But he just blew everybody's mind that he would take that position, angered a lot of his colleagues, as you can imagine, because he had the courage to say that. But he said, I cannot deny that intelligent design is required, that there is a God, a designer, God, that put all this together. And that's what happens. The more they find out, the more they learn, the more they get to the basic building blocks of life, they start to see complexity, complexity that cannot be explained by this great force in the universe called chance. Chance is their God for some of them. But honest ones who certainly look at things like that and all they have to do is read John 1, 4. In him was life. In him was life. <laughs> you don't have to get more complicated than that. It takes more faith to believe 10 to the 164th power, right? That's trillions and trillions and trillions. That's, that's trillions and trillions and trillions. That's, that's a, a one by 264 zeros after it. I don't even know. I was reading what they thought that number was, Gavillianagin, or I don't know, just crazy numbers. At some point, it's trillions and trillions and trillions. One out of that. So you get the point. In him was life. In him was life. And did I mention you have to have a cell membrane around all that? Oh, just, just it's complex. too complex. But the only option is life starts with Jesus Christ, the self-existent God who is a secret to life, who creates life. And that's what we see here in John 1. And notice, we'll look at this and maybe I can get through this one in our remaining time. You see in verse 6, excuse me, uh, verse uh, 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In light shines... In, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Okay. This is an obscure verse in some ways. It's going to be a tremendous theme throughout the book of John, light. Light is going to be a theme, a major theme. God is light. I am the light of the world. You're going to see statements like that. That's all true. But the question is, are we talking about creation? Are we talking about what we're going to see later Light as refers to salvation and sanctification and those kinds of things. I think in the context, we're still talking about creation. 
So let's think of it that way, recognizing we can certainly go the other way too and be just as on target. But let's just think about that, for example, for, for, for the time being. One thing we can be sure in this verse, one thing we can be sure in verse 4 is that Christ turns on the light for the human race. We can be sure about that statement. And if you want to make it on the spiritual side of things, or if you want to make it in creation, you're, you're correct either way. So that's not going to hurt anything. But I think John is focused still on creation. We're talking about life, beginning of life, and life being formed. We're talking about creating the whole world. And now we're talking about light. We're talking about illumination. We're talking about uh, illuminate, the illumination that took place from a dark existence. Light shone in the darkness in Genesis chapter 1. And you notice in Genesis chapter 1 that the luminaries, the stars and the planets and the moon and the sun are not formed and not created until day what? Four. And so what was the light that invaded the darkness at creation? I think that's what he's referring to. And the reference that you could go to, for one reference you could go to, would certainly be in Revelation chapter 21, 23. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. You follow me? I'm just saying the Shekinah glory, because we're talking about the Word is God. We're talking about Jesus is God. We're talking about Jesus as creator. We're talking about Jesus as that light that shone in the darkness at creation. The Shekinah glory of God invaded the darkness. And before the sun and the moon and all of those other luminaries were formed, you have the illumination by Christ in the darkness. Stay with me. I know that's not well developed yet, so stay with me. Go to Romans 1. This chapter is about how men suppress the truth. God's truth has been made evident, and people suppress the truth. In verse 5 of John 1, don't have to turn back there, stay in Romans 1, but in John 1, 5, it says, the darkness did not comprehend it. It says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The light chases the darkness away, but the life does not comprehend it. The life doesn't understand it. The, excuse me, the, uh, the darkness does not understand it, does not comprehend it. Let me just, let me just take you through this well, you know this chapter, you know this section. Think about it in these terms as I, I take you through this. People suppress the truth. One of the truths that people suppressed is creational truth. They suppress the truth about creation even though it is so obviously seen. They they, 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 man suppresses all kinds of truth, all kinds of truths about Jesus. The roles of men and women, the roles of, uh, of just who God is, all of those things. 
But this I'm going to just focus on creational truth. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. They know the truth, they suppress it. Because that which is known about God, look at verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. It's evident within them. Uh, there's this lingering testimony in the human heart that there is somebody out there and it's not aliens. There's somebody out there that made us. That is in the human heart. I have a conscience and I feel bad when I do wrong things. Where did that come from? I, I'm, I know he is real and he is holy and I'm accountable. Men suppress that. Men suppress that truth. That's general revelation. That is available to everybody. This is how God has revealed himself. The light is there. The light is turned on. You look at creation, there's light. There's light because Christ created the world. And what do men do with the light of creation? They suppress it. They, they love their darkness more. Um, so there's this lingering testimony that there must be somebody out there that made all this. And they think design from a designer. Not random chance. That is not where man's mind naturally goes. You have to get educated to go there. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made so that they are without excuse. So here's the point. It's not hidden. It's not obscure. If you're going to understand, I mean, if you're really going to understand God, you need a verbal message about God. You need to go to God's word to really understand and come to salvation. Just looking at creation and living with your conscience is not going to bring you salvation. But it is light. It is general revelation. It is light that God has provided to everybody on the planet. And because of that light, men are without excuse. It's enough to condemn you what you do with that light. May it move you to find out more about that God and believe and trust in him, or it can move you to harden your heart to where you suppress the truth because you don't want there to be a God. You don't want God to exist. And you will come up with all kinds of theories and reasons why he doesn't exist. But so, so Paul says in Romans 1, the message is clear. He's the light of the world. In, in a creation sense. He's the light of the world. He created this to tell us about himself and God. Paul says they're without excuse at the end of that verse. Then he goes into 21, for even though they knew God, all the sinners that came after Adam and Eve, they knew he was there, but verse 21 says, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Notice they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. The light was on, the light was on, but professing to be wise, verse 22 says, they became fools. John's saying the light just radiates in creation 
The light radiates in creation, but darkened sinners close their eyes to that illumination. In him was light, but sinners close their eyes to that. The light was the light of men. He turned on the light for us. The darkness rejected it, did not comprehend it, did not understand it, and suppressed it. And then you know what the rest of the story is, 23 and following, exchange the glory of the incorruptible God, and it goes on like that. Go back to John 1. In John 1, verse 6, continuing with this same idea, so stay with me on it, just keep this flow going in your mind. We're talking about light, we're talking about the light of creation, we're talking about Jesus is the one, is that light, he is the one that created it all. Verse 6, there came a man sent from God, he starts talking about John the Baptist here, okay? You say, whoa, 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 where'd that come from? Just all of a sudden we're talking about John the Baptist. John the, he's not, he wasn't a Baptist, by the way. He was a baptizer. John the baptizer, okay? Some people think that he was, and that's not true. He was John the baptizer because he came with that message to baptize people in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. We'll talk more, a lot more to come about John the Baptist. He's introduced here, though, in relation to the light because it says there came a man, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Interesting. You know, light does not normally need a witness to tell you it is there. You see it. Light does not normally need somebody to come and testify about its, its existence. But this indicates the problem. This indicates the problem. Men are blind. Men are blind. That's the problem. Men are blind, they do not comprehend, and they reject it, and there should be no need to testify about it. But darkness and blindness cannot see, and they can look at the world and all of the evidences for a creator, and they can look at all of that and not process the light. And so they just stay blind. Unless, of course, God does something to them, which that is not our topic for today, but that's what has to happen, right? The God of this world has blinded the minds. So, John the Baptist was sent from God to be a witness to blind men and blind women about this light. Verse 7, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. We're going to see more of that in this chapter. He's going to testify about the light. It's going to take on, in, the metaphor is going to be used in more spiritual ways as we go through this. But I think we're referring to it in that context there. John did not want anybody to think he was the light. I'm just a sign. Don't get hung up on me. I'm just a sign. John was extremely popular. Understand that. John was the greatest man that ever lived at that time, Jesus said. We're talking about a very popular guy. And people could get confused and think, oh, you're the one. In fact, some people thought Jesus was John the Baptist. He says, no, I'm not. 
Notice in verse, you don't have to look at all these, but in John 1.20, he, he, he said this, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. If you're looking at me, you're not looking at the light. I'm a road sign that tells you where the light is and who the light is. But I'm not the light. Verse 26, John answered and said, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. Uh, stands one who is the light. I'm not even worthy, he goes on to say, to untie his sandal. John 1.34, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. This is God. This is one who is equal to God in nature, Son of God. John 1.35, the next day there were two of his disciples standing there. They looked at Jesus as he walked and said, John said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And those disciples went and followed him. And verse 8 says, and he was not the light. Let me just say this, in, in Acts chapter 19, Paul encounters some disciples of John the Baptist. And he's talking to these disciples of John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist was extremely popular. So it's very possible, Leon Morris suggests this in his commentary, he suggests that there may have been a John the Baptist cult in existence, people who were still very loyal to John the Baptist. And so just as a reminder that this is not about John the Baptist, this is about the one who John the Baptist is testifying about. Paul encounters these individuals in Acts chapter 19, discovers they have not been he says, what baptism did you experience? And he says, oh, John the Baptist. And he had to explain to them that John the Baptist was not the purpose of John the Baptist. It was the light. It was Christ. And those men were baptized into Christ. Apollos had the same problem. A lot of people had problems in the, the, con, the, the transition from John the Baptist to Christ. The popularity of John was just overwhelming and unimaginable. I could say a lot more. As you know, we could go on and on all day on this, but the point is, take off your dark glasses and see the light, right? That's the messages to the world. There's a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Doesn't mean he saves everybody. He just means he brings truth to everybody. Truth about who God is, truth about who Christ is, truth about who, uh, you know, the, how to get rid of, deal with the penalty of sin, the one who satisfied the wrath of God in our place, all of these things, these are all truths that John will touch on. If you don't know Christ, then you will one day pay for your own sin. You know that? If you died today and you leave this auditorium and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, you will pay the penalty of your own sin because the light has come into the world. The one who... John called the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. If you don't trust in that Lamb, that light, you will die in your sin, separated from God in the eternal hell. I hate to give that message, but that's the truth of God's word. And our only hope to escape the wrath of God to come is to put your faith and trust in Jesus. That's what we're about. That's what John is about. He's pointing men to that, that you might believe and have life in his name. Father, thank you for our time today. Thank you for these truths that we have been able to look at together. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.